It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Shows or join the team at sport-social.co.uk. Hello, welcome back to the Masterclass the Tactical Podcast. I'm your host, Haydar Rabani. Manchester United have won 3-1 against Burnley. Fantastic two goals by Mason Greenwood. Great to see him get on the score sheet. Eddie Cavani with a goal right at the death. Rob, it was, uh, as you expected, against Burnley, a side who are going to be physical. They're going to play with a low block. They're going to match up in the confrontations. But considering after that first half, United did the business. Now, at this stage, that's all you really want from them. Yes, Haydar. Well, as I always say, this time of the season, performances are not important. But what's really good from this, and this is maybe blue sky thinking, is that Manchester United are becoming a team that when they play poorly or don't play as great as they can, that they win games. And this is something that we haven't seen in maybe the last two or three years. United have always had to play out their skins to get the performance, to get the victory, to get the three points. But I think what we've seen maybe in the last two or three months United have found a kind of happy medium that they've dug themselves out of poor performances, but still managed to win games relatively comfortably. I think when you look at this game, yeah, as the clock was ticking, it was getting a bit precarious. You were thinking about what was going to happen. You know, were Burnley even going to get one more opportunity and maybe win it themselves? They're always a difficult prospect, Burnley, home or away. But I think what was good today was that Manchester United kind of weathered the storm and took the game away from Burnley just at the point where it might have slipped away. Yeah, 100%. Rob, look, when you play against a side that looks to drop deep, it's always a struggle, isn't it? You've got to move the ball quickly. You've got to play with width. Um, and you've, you've found a few times this season, well, quite a lot of the times this season, when United do play against a side who uh, who do drop deep, you know, you find that their intensity of their passing also drops off. We saw that a little bit in the second half. What I thought United did well is that I thought the strategy was correct. You know, get Pogba and Bruno in those pockets of spaces, get them going into the box, get them causing problems for Burnley, you know, in those dangerous areas. But unfortunately, we were struggling to get the ball ball to them. And I had an interesting t- statistic here saying here that uh, United averaged 66% against Burnley under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So what we saw really was that low block. But looking at that formation, 4-2-3-1, we saw Henderson back in goal, a little bit of a blip for him a few times in the game, but relatively safe otherwise. Lindelof and Maguire, who are going to have a physical battle, and they did have that physical battle. And let's talk about Harry Maguire today, because this should be a game really where he thrives. And when you're having a look at Harry Maguire, you know, he's got the third most headed clearances in the league with 81 um, and has 129 aerial battles. But for that goal, he was definitely beaten too easily, wasn't he? And you'd expect in this sort of game, this is where he thrived. And I think... That defensive pairing today, I felt like they were bullied and 
almost with Henderson behind, you know, he's going to play that sweeper keeper role. And he did it fantastic, fantastically against Spurs. But when you play that role, you are going to have mistakes, aren't you? You know, if he's going to be rushing out like that, you have to expect that it is a high risk and usually it's a high reward, but you will have mistakes. But is there an argument? And this is what I've been thinking that because those two in front aren't that solid, he's almost a little bit nervous behind. I think sometimes that that can be pitched as an excuse. And I say that because these guys train together all the time. They know each other. They know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. And it is about decision-making and taking responsibility for your own game. That's what it comes down to. So it all went wrong in this game after 30 seconds. So the ball comes from just the other side of the halfway line. It's up in the air. It's under Lindelof. So Lindelof can obviously make the jump or kind of at least shepherd Wood out the way. And Dean Henderson has a moment of madness, absolute crazy madness, the kind of madness that gets you dropped. So the funny thing was like, yeah, you said that it kind of rectified it and all that. I don't really think he did. I think when he should have come for the ball, he didn't. And when he kind of felt stressed, he was kind of out too quickly. Um, it was probably his worst performance in the Manchester United jersey, I think, because it it could have cost the game today. Um, you know, if you lose that goal right at the start of the match, then it's a completely different kettle of fish. What I will say about Harry Maguire is this, is that Harry Maguire is a ball-playing centre-back. That's what he sold as when he came to Manchester United. That's what he was kind of set up as a, a Leicester and, and beyond, and obviously playing for England at the World Cup in 2018, that he could be a ball-playing centre-back. But he's also a big lump. And what I mean by that is that as a centre-back, he shouldn't really have any trouble in the air against aggressive centre-forwards. So today, really, uh, Burnley have got one outlet, and that's Wood. So when the ball goes in the air, you've got to deal with it. So I think overall they dealt with Wood, except for that first 30 seconds, where it nearly went wrong. Uh, and obviously the ball did end up in the back of the net, but they got away with it with the offside call. But I think when you look at the Burnley goal, which comes, what is it, a minute or two after United have actually opened the scoring, I, I have no idea what's going on, Haydar. We talked about this before with set pieces, corners and responsibility. And I've said week after week after week, Harry Maguire as the captain, as a centre-back, has to control the line. He has to know what's in front of him and what's behind him and where his goalkeeper is. And when that ball comes into the box, there is literally no danger. Luke Shaw is closer to Dean Henderson than any player on the football pitch. So they attacked it. It was a set piece. And we know Tchaikovsky's a, a good header of the ball. He can get up. But in that moment, Harry Maguire has got to stop him in that leap. And he leaps and he gets a, a header from, what, eight yards? And it goes in the back of the net. It's not good enough. Now, this is when we talk about what do you do in years and weeks and come and be projected and you kind of look back over your stats. This season, at the end of this campaign, whether United come second or third, but obviously it looks like second is good at the moment and eight points off the top. Being quiet about that, not talking about that yet. But Manchester United, I think when we look at it at the end of this season, we have now probably got a body of work of 12 months to say set pieces and the ball being in the air and the centre-backs controlling that line is a problem. Um, fans, you know, logging on here and watching us live might not feel that today because United just won 3-1. But for me, that was the big takeaway from this match that, yes, the performance wasn't really what was important. It was a result and they got the result. But I think Harry Maguire is the £80 million Manchester United centre-back captain has got to do better in certain moments. And I just thought today his, over, his all-round game just 
was slow, a bit more cumbersome. He was a bit too deep at times. We've seen games where he's got the ball at his feet and he's almost like, you know, sprinted out with the yeah, ball. Gone forward, yeah. And there was all that room there today. So there was no philosophical issue for him to not be able to do it. You know, they played a low block and he had room to step in. And he did later on. I think, you know, he played a really good ball to Rashford into the box. Uh, and Rashford didn't quite manage to get it out of his feet. But that's a still, you know, that's a kind of bit that pinches me, pinches my skin. I kind of think to myself, they did okay, but this is Burnley and Burnley have been awful this year. So Burnley from two years ago, yeah, I might have been afraid of. But this Burnley should be more easy to deal with. And I think, again, United, after a European endeavour, looked tired, didn't really look like they were clicking. But my centre-back, I wasn't particularly happy with him today. Um, just to put that into context, Rob, you know, another set-piece conceded. That's 13 this season now for Manchester United, uh, which is a really bad record. You know, comparing that to some of the other teams that have conceded a lot of goals this year, West Brom are, 17th in that respect and you've got Liverpool Palace and Leicester have conceded more set pieces um, than United as well with 14 each and then it's Manchester United and look if Man United want to compete for titles that's definitely a key area where they need to you know they need to find a way of defending them better now you know when I'm having a look at it you know you can always say down to coaching but when you send the players out there it's a mix of both for me when you send the players out there to go and do it these are professional you know, seasoned players, these are internationals, international players, they need to go and do their job properly. And unfortunately, you know, look, United did enough uh, to win the game. And I actually think United played well in the second half and, uh, you know, deserved the victory. But that could have easily, have, um, you know, caused problems for us going forward. And it's those sort of games where when United have to close the gap on whoever's further ahead of them, they have found their, you know, found it difficult. So, I'm just uh, I'm just a little bit concerned, you know, sort of going forward because it doesn't look like when we look at these set pieces that we're getting any better at them. You know, we talked about the goalkeeper, you know, would the keeper make a difference when he, when he's come in? And yes, he has made a difference, but that hasn't stopped, you know, the lack of communication in the box. So, you know, sort of moving forward with that, we have a look at Mason Greenwood today. And I thought Mason was a bit ineffectual at number nine. I was a little bit disappointed at him centrally. You know, this was a game where... You had to hold the ball up well. You know, it would be a physical threat. You know, I'd like to see Mason play more at number nine. But if I'm completely honest with you, when he's moved out wide, he's probably looked a little bit more threatening. You know, cutting in on his left. He just seems to score a few more goals there. I mean, talk to me a little bit about your view on his first half as number nine and second half at right wing. You know, do you think his future for the short term is on that right-hand side? I've said it. Over and over and over and over and over again, you know, uh, I think we are all getting a little bit obsessed with Mason Greenwood as the nine, right? He can play it. He will be able to play it. But it's a little bit like Mbappe. Yeah, everyone said years ago when Mbappe was really young, they were going, he's going to be a number nine. And what you found was that he was just a demon in the channel. Get him in the channel. He can run people. He's quick. He's got a great finish. He can do all of those things. And you know, you just used the classic word there about holding up the ball. Well, I still don't believe that 90% of centre-forwards in the modern game hold the ball up anymore. Harry Kane holds the ball up because he comes deep and, and holds the ball. I don't think Cavani holds the ball up, really. Not really. He doesn't particularly turn his back to goal. I always think of Mark Hughes, when Mark Hughes played for Man United, that he was a classical number nine who would put his shoulders out, hold the ball up and allow players to come in. Do we play that game? 
I don't think we do. I don't think that there is that that tactic within the system. So yes, if you're a big centre forward, if you're if you're Chris Wood, yeah, you're going to probably hold the ball up and do it better than others. But if we're expecting a teenager like Mason Greenwood, who is still learning his trade, to kind of do all of those things and do it regularly, and we want to kind of see that, that kind of progress, I think you're just going to be left wanting, and it's pointless. What's important is not really where he starts in the team. What's important is scoring goals. He scored goals today. So I don't really mind if he spends 20 minutes on the right, 30 minutes in the middle, 10 minutes on the left. I don't care about any of that because that stuff doesn't actually matter. What matters is putting it all together and making sure it works. You're right. Second half, United were better. Obviously, they scored very early on, um, but then obviously conceded and had to then kind of bring the game back. Um, But it wasn't a vintage United performance. As far as the performance goes, it was a kind of... It, it was a flat performance that we see after European competition. So I was expecting that. That's kind of exactly what we got. Burnley are a bad kind of opponent for you because of the way they play. Uh, and when you've had these European endeavours, it's a difficult matchup. Um, but overall, you know, Mason will come away from this match and he, was, he scored goals. He'll feel good. And that's what it should be about. We shouldn't be kind of deconstructing every blade of grass that he stood on because that means number nine, that means number 11, this means 10. All of that stuff does matter when you set up, but it doesn't really matter on the final whistle. Um, and the final whistle today was that Manchester United got the victory. It was a it was a decent victory, eight points off Manchester City now at the top. And I think that that does represent progress. You know, again, there's, there was kind of holes that we saw today that you'd like to see more, you know, better passing ability and maybe a more progressive setup and all of those things. But I think Mason looks like, for me, last few weeks, a player who's coming into form. And I really, really, really hope, fingers crossed, that he doesn't go to the Euros. I'm not interested in him seeing him in England shirt. Go and have a rest. He needs a rest. I'm interested in what he does for Manchester United in a red shirt, not what he does in the Three Lions. I agree here. And, you know, it's a good comment here saying Greenwood and Cavani have found form at the right time. Absolutely. I do want to sort of touch on, Rob, the, the fact that Oli did make a sub at half time. You know, he does get uh, criticised for not making substitutions early enough. Um, but, you know, every time we have either needed to make a change or we have gone in, gone behind, you know, he's made changes at half time and they seem to work. You will never see Solskjaer go and make a change, you know, maybe 20 minutes in, 25 minutes in. Like you saw Pogba midweek uh, picked up the yellow card and... You know, there yeah. was a risk. Vast, that he majority, sent vast majority of managers won't. Vast yeah, majority. You'll like see. You'll Mourinho see. You'll might see, have done it years yeah, ago, and everyone goes, say, "Oh, genius, yeah. genius, genius." Well, it's not really that much genius because you got it so badly wrong that you're taking someone off the twenty yeah. minutes. So I, I think, like in uh, in the situation that we pulled Pogba there in Europe, it, it was a gamble at twenty minutes, twenty five minutes in. But then you say to the player, "Stop," you know, get to half time then we do it properly. That's the correct way to do it. So I think Ole is, I don't, I've never really had a problem with Ole's um, substitution. I think that he does it in a, in quite pragmatic way. He looks at kind of how the game's unfolding and that's the correct way, I think, for a coach to do it. Yeah, I agree with that. Look, guys, we'll talk about the European Super League. We'll do it right at the end because, uh, you know, we want to get to the game first, but uh, get your questions in as well. We'll be answering them. Uh, so yeah, just chuck them in the comments. But what I do want to say, Rob, as well, is that what, what conundrum I have with Paul Pogba, we've spoken about him many times. I don't want to, I don't want to deconstruct, you know, him where he's better further forward or further back. I think it's actually a great problem to have. You know, if, if things aren't working like today where we're struggling to progress the ball forward, I think, you know, 
I, I was fine with McFred starting. I had no issues with it because I thought you're playing Burnley, you got front up to them. It's going to be a physical game. They'll do that. Um, and what was nice to see is you saw the positives of Paul Pogba further forward. You know, I like him further forward, like him higher up in the sense that he can receive the ball in dangerous areas. You know, he can be a bit of a goal threat. I like him deeper as well because, you know, he's at the heart of midfield. He's in the, he's at the centre of everything good that United do. He, he can progress the ball forward. Um, and what we saw actually is that, you know, Oli had that flexibility and, you know, bringing Cavani on like he did at half time, taking Fred off, dropping Pogba further back. Immediately you saw the goal. Uh, Marcus, who is more comfortable on the left, and you saw the best of Marcus there. Lovely, lovely sort of intent and directness. And then the cross in to the box, Bruno with the with the dummy and then Mason with the finish. That's a big positive for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, isn't it? That he can tweak it, tweak the positioning of Paul Pogba depending on what he wants from him. And I think that's one of the positives for the season because last season, if we were going into this game and it was 1-1, like it was after Tarkovsky scored, you know, I don't know if I would have turned around and said United have enough to, to win this, to have enough um, you know, maybe on the bench or have nothing in the squad to change it, but they can, and that 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 is progress, isn't it, for Manchester United? It is, and and I think it's it's also like if we compare this to say again Guardiola and Guardiola's system at Manchester City, Guardiola plays his system but constantly tweaks the personnel constantly, and that is the kind of utopia in football. That's what every manager wants to be able to do. You play your system, why? Because that's what you teach them. Yeah, on a training ground, you work with it. Manchester United play 4-2-3-1 under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. They've stuck with that. They're going to stick with it. So it's about being able to change the personnel. And then your personnel allowing you to be able to win a game where maybe you might be drawing it or losing it. So that's really how it works. So we talk about Paul Pogba. There is no, you know, we, we've said it so many times. There's nothing against him playing in the pivot, not at all. Whereas today, we didn't really play with the pivot. You know, it wasn't that Pogba was playing deep in a two and United were screening and all of that stuff. That, was, that wasn't really happening. What what Ole decided to do was he took Fred off because Fred's energy was kind of wasted because that part of the part was being vacated by Burnley. That allowed United to kind of pass through the lines a little bit more. It allowed Pogba to kind of, even though he was in the pivot, not really be in the pivot. He kind of went forward. He was kind of more like 20 yards from the edge of the box and playing around that area. So Ole made a, a progressive substitute at that point. And it immediately ripped Burnley to shreds because that ball, when it goes to the left with, with Marcus and Marcus gets down there on the left-hand side by skipping through, that then opened up Burnley. And you could see that Burnley weren't ready for that. So that was a good way of doing it to kind of make that change and then to have kind of those different personnel in different positions to get the goal. So it was a really, really good goal. And it was very disappointing to concede two minutes later from yet another set piece, which I think is, as I said, the takeaway from this game. Um, but it's good. And, and I, this is what we need to see with this team is that they need to grow. So even Donny van der Beek coming on for 10 minutes, you know, this is Donny who's done absolutely nothing. Happy birthday, Donny, today. He's coming, coming onto the pitch and, you know, getting involved that even in those last few minutes, he was involved, you know, and he got an assist. And that is a positive because that will be the best birthday present possible for him. He'll go away now and he'll feel good about himself that he came on and helped get United over the line. And this is kind of what we need from the whole squad, you know, going forward, you know, beyond this season, when we start talking about what will United do, who will they sign, how will they play? This is the bigger kind of more in, all-encompassing questions about how do we find a way to become better Today, United beat Burnley. And again, it's like a cliche. A year ago, would we have beaten Burnley like this? Mm, don't know. No. 
would have probably been one all and we might have all come away going, well, United didn't play well, so they didn't deserve the points. They didn't play well today, but they got the points. That is what matters. Absolutely. I do agree with that, Rob. Uh, guys, we're going to take some questions now. We will discuss the Super League. I just want to answer a few more questions related to the, you know, sort of United and, and, you know, the game before we approach the Super League, because there will be, uh, I think, a long discussion on that. Uh, Rob, a question here. Which priority do you think uh, the, the new centre-back is in the list of priorities, uh, you know, for sort of positions-wise? So let, let's let's run through a few positions. United, for me, need a right winger. They, they need a striker. They need a defensive midfielder for me. Um, and centre-back. I think they're the four key positions. If Paul Pogba leaves someone that... That's half a team. Midfield. <laughs> well, that, that's the reality, though, Rob. I do yeah. think we're about four players away from, you know, four top quality signings. And then you could talk about, you know, a right back, perhaps, you know, someone that can rotate with Wan-Bissaka, someone who's a bit more attack-minded, although I think Wan-Bissaka has definitely, definitely improved after we have um, we have discussed him heavily, haven't we? Especially earlier on in the season where he was doing a lot of things that were frustrating us. He has, to credit, he has seemed to have picked up, especially going forward. He's more confident making his runs. But where would you see centre-back as a priority? Because, um, you know, we can't keep conceding like we are at, at set-pieces. I think it is a soft priority. And what I mean by that is there's no doubt that Ole is seeing what we're seeing. There's no doubt about it. This isn't None of this is like magical unicorns running across a football pitch and can you see them or not. This is the truth. So the truth is that our centre-backs are slow. That's just reality. That's a fact. We knew that at the start of the season. We knew that last season. We've known that since forevermore. And really what it comes down to is, does the manager and do the board, when they have these discussions, believe that that is a position that will stop Man United winning the league or at least making a title challenge? And I think that as the season goes on and as we get almost towards the last games now, that the answer to that question is, yes, it will stop United winning the title. And if you can see 13 or 14 set pieces a year, that's enough to stop you winning a title. It's kind of as simple as that. Rob, you know, if you saw a breakdown in where we've dropped points, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. you look at Sheffield United, you look at Everton, you know, that's yeah. six points. And you could argue as well, they were mistakes, defensive mistakes right at the end, obviously with Calvert-Lewin's goal. And then you had the one um, at the corner, I believe, I think it was, no, was it Oli Burke? You know, that's six points. If United sort that, sorted that out, they'd be in the title race right now. Well, did they, win, the last... did they lose? Did, did we lose three of the first four at home, didn't we? We lost three yeah. of the first four at home. It's nine points. Yeah. So if you if you just win normal home games, nine points, now you're top of the league. So the, the, these are kind of quasi-statistics in a way because they're kind of like if, buts and maybes. But there is some truth to it. And, and what we've learned this season about United is that they are slow starters in games. They were slow starters in the league itself. And they're slowly over time, they find their way. They find solutions. They get to where they want to be. But it doesn't make Harry Maguire quicker. It doesn't make Victor Lindelof quicker. So I think when you see today the issue, and I think it's worth talking about because um, Dean Henderson has matched up quite well with Maguire and Lindelof. I think everyone would admit that. But I think what we saw today was the, the, that, that kind of treble of triangle of players in that part of the pitch, I thought they really struggled today. Now, I don't know if that was triggered by the goalkeeper having that mad moment in the first minute and that kind of put the frighteners on them. Yeah. But what, I, what, I, I, want, what I want to see, what I want to see, Haydar, in those moments 
is that you recover from them quickly, that you kind of go, we got away with that, and then you get back to it. And I didn't feel that today. I felt that they kind of slacked. They kind of they kind of got a bit scared in their own skins. So Dean Henderson, there was a moment later on at the end of the first half where I thought he should have come for the ball, and he didn't. And he did make the save, but I thought, well, you should be coming for that. That's a simple one. And then the second half, he did it all over again. The ball came, kind of goes long. He smashes into the back of Lindelof. There's, there's no reason to come for the ball 50 yards from your... That your was absolute madness. <laughs> but <laughs> that, that is, this is what football's about. Football's yeah. about decisions. We are, I always say it's about decision-making. So it, he, he made four decisions today that were wrong, that could have cost United goals, and they didn't. So he got away with it. And I think with that corner, like Harry Maguire might be saying, well, do you know what? I didn't do work very well with Tchaikovsky in that moment. But why is my goalkeeper not coming for that? Because it's seven yards from goal. You know, and you see that he kind of, um, Dean kind of pushes uh, Luke Shaw away because Luke's screening him to protect him from Chris Wood. But they get it all wrong because there's nowhere near him at all. So really the goalkeeper should be footloose and fancy free there at the back post to go and attack the ball. So they got it all wrong. And and I don't think that that's coaching. I really don't because Harry Maguire, since the day he was born, has been headering balls out of the, out of the box. Yeah. He's, he's played in lower divisions where the ball is up there all the time and he can do it. And, and I think this season there is, there is definitely something in his game that doesn't allow him to do it. I don't know what, but he's got to make that choice. So today he's got to be big and strong. And even if he just hurts, the defender coming in gets close and they clash heads, but the ball doesn't end up in the back of the net. Job done. That's what you're there for. And I don't see that enough from Harry, and that is worrying for me. We've discussed the centre-back pairing a lot, Rob, and, uh, you know, we always say, uh, it, is, it is an old adage, you know, titles are built from the back. That's the foundations there if you do it from. I think, you know, Lindelof and Maguire get a rough ride. They're nowhere near as bad as people think they are. They're both good footballers on their own. When you put, when you bring them together, obviously that's where the issues arise. You know, they almost make each other's deficiencies worse. The lack of pace is a big thing. But no, I do agree with you. You know, these these are sort of games where Maguire should should really it should be bread and butter for him. We knew Lindelof would struggle today. I knew every time we play against a side, we saw it against West Brom. We've seen it today. Any side that's physical, Lindelof's gonna struggle, and I don't expect anything different. Um, but no, I do think that they were shaky today, and and that was that's definitely something to look at and think: Do we need to improve on that? Um, but let's move on to another question here. So we've got a question saying thoughts on Van der Beek. Uh, I thought he was better versus Granada, and in in his cameo today, deserved his assist. I do actually want to say, Rob, about Donny Van der Beek. Obviously, we didn't do a show uh, after the Granada game, but uh, I was I was more impressed with what I saw. Small sample size, and that's my phrase I use all the time. And I know that it's a bit of a low bar because he hasn't been particularly. Um, What's the word? You know, he hasn't really set the world alight. But when I looked at Donny van der Beek, he looked more positive the other day. We saw Bruno shift out to the left as well. And him and him and Donny uh, against Granada, they were almost rotating and, and you know, sort of being a bit more fluid. What I liked with van der Beek, though, he looked more confident. He looked more progressive. And today, even today, you know, he seemed much more involved. He's come on the pitch before, Rob, and he hasn't touched the ball in 10 minutes. He seems to have got a little bit of confidence. Look, early days, I still say this, and, and people, you know, people do say, oh, you're being reactionary. But I still think that, you know, 40 million came in for him. I would I would cash in and go and invest that in in different areas of the team. That's that's how I feel. Not because I don't think he's a good player. I think he's fantastically talented. What I do think, though, is that is he suited to the Premier League? Is he suited to our, our system and our style of play? That still remains to be seen. But look, I would love him to be a success. And I think, you know, 
small, small steps. Um, but I think that he has looked he's looked a lot better the last couple of games. Baby steps. And I think when you look at the Europa League, I thought he was okay again, but I didn't think he was brilliant. You know, I thought he was okay. Um, I'm not sat there thinking, yeah, this is a guy who deserves a chance in the first team in the Premier League. I'm pleased that he came on today and had some kind of impact. As I've said in previous shows, his lack of impact is the issue. You know, if you're coming on off the bench, like today, United won all. They're trying to win a match. And can he can he play some part in that? So I think with the third goal, you know, he makes the right call, doesn't he? He's on that side. You might find that a guy who hasn't played a lot of football might have snatched at that and just put his foot through it and tried to score. He might have scored. But what he did was he made the right choice. And actually all four or five passes all the way through that play were all the right choices. So that was very pleasing that United kind of kept their nerve in that kind of clutch moment for the game to actually win it. Um, I think with Donny van der Beek, again, you know what I'm like. It's hard to kind of, I don't like sitting here and saying about cashing in and getting someone because like I always say, you could do that. And if the person you bring in isn't as good or isn't, doesn't have the same potential, doesn't have the same quality, then what's the point? You know, there is really no point. It just then becomes a football manager game again, like I say all the time. So if we got a good offer for Donny van der Beek and we could go and buy a serious upgrade for him, I'm all, all for that. But, Really, what the probably the truth is, is that if you sell Donny van der Beek for, say, 25, 22, that's probably more his market value as it stands today. You're going to replace him with Jesse Lingard. That's the truth. So, like, so this is the thing you have to kind of grasp hold of and what United fans, what they really kind of want in inverted corners, uh, in commas and what they believe will actually happen. So... That's what will more likely happen is that if United look at the books and kind of go, Donny van der Beek has been a failure. We don't believe he'll kick on next year. We believe we can get some money for him. They are not going to go out and spend like for like cash just because, because we live in COVID times. It's a different time now. What they're going to do is they're going to bring back the guy that's already on their payroll that will cost them nothing. And actually, that might be the correct choice. But that's for Ole to decide. Ole needs to decide whether that will be the correct one, that, that kind of Lingard has more use from the bench and Lingard knows to play more and Lingard will do the running and Lingard will join the dots and Lingard might now score a few more goals. And you might now have more faith in Lingard to start a few more matches and say, Bruno, you need a rest. Go and sit on the bench. This year, we've not seen that because Donny's not been ready. So you would have hoped that Donny would have played more games as a number 10 or at least as an attacker. But that hasn't happened and it hasn't materialised for the right reasons. We know why that hasn't happened. That's not been a case of the manager holding back a player. That's just been a player who's been badly out of form. Yeah, I think I think that's very fair. <clears throat> I've said, look, I said even back in sort of October, November time, if you remember, Rob, I said, look, I do have doubts whether he's gonna he's gonna fit. But look, I, I'd be happily proved, proven wrong because look, if Tony Van der Beek performs and he's and he's smashing it for United, it's only a benefit for us. But it's kind of what I, um, kind of what I've been thinking about the squad recently. I do want to pose this towards you because if you look at the squad and we've discussed this before, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wanted to have you know different options in the squad. So you look at Luke Shaw, who's who's a more progressive ball carrier. You look at Tellez, who 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 was. Um, so he was effective against Granada, wasn't he? He was. He's much better in, in terms of putting the ball in from deep. A uh, completely different type of player. And then you look at Anthony Martial. Now, Martial's a striker who likes to drop 
deep and collect the ball, uh, whereas Cavani prefers to play more more on the last man. Um, and you see these sort of things, and it's a positive in a way because United have different options. But the question I want to pose to you is, has it almost hindered United a little bit as well? Because when you're looking at the makeup of the squad, you take out certain players and the ones that come in, maybe they're not as talented, but they're also completely different types of players. And it's almost as if it's no surprise that United are playing differently when certain players are out the side. You know, going forward, do United need, need to now start bringing in players who are going to fit the system so that if one player is out, let's just say Bruno Fernandes is out. It's just, look, I'm just playing devil's advocate. That the player that is coming in is almost a like for like in terms of stylistically and the, the job that he does in that role. And then United almost don't see such a dramatic shift in the style or, or the way they play the game against that certain opponent just because they're changing the pieces who, who aren't the same. But it's almost impossible to facilitate the, what, what you've just explained there in the kind of saying, you know, like for like, because you won't find another Bruno Fernandes in, in Europe. Okay, right. let's talk about it similar exist. though. So, you know, uh, like, like with Pep, if, if a player comes out and the player comes in, you know, Pep's okay. buying players who are going to fit that style. Do, do United need to do that a little bit more, do you think? Okay, well, put it this way. When you lose Sergio Aguero, you replace him with Gabriel Jesus. Are they the same stylistically? W wouldn't say they're, they're, they're not, the same, they're not. but they're, they're closer just not, but to they're, the... They're, they're, the system is the system. And what you do is with your squad of 23, 24, 25 and the kids is that you kind of drill them in that system over and over and over and over again. So you find players that can do certain things. So when you look at Kevin De Bruyne, Kevin De Bruyne is not the same as Mares, but you might play them in almost similar roles, but they have different upsides. So it's not a case of United finding players that, can just play one system over and over again. What you actually really want is a squad that can play 10 systems. That's what you really want. You want to be able to change it at will and have the correct players to do it. Now, that isn't the real, that's not realism. And what I'm saying by that is that when you play 4 2 3 1, of course, that's what you're coaching. And that's what you're going to see every week. And when you buy a player, you're not going to buy a player and go, well, he doesn't fit my system, but I'll buy him anyway. It doesn't work like that, but you do want variety. So Donny van der Beek should be able to play 4-2-3-1, but he can't play the double pivot. So this is where I think fans maybe get confused with it because they kind of say, well, he can play six, he can play, he can play 10. So that's all right. He can do, he can be one of those this week. Well, not really, because He's got to be able to play that role over and over again and be good at it. That's really important. It's so, also different for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer playing in double pivot as it is playing yeah. in uh, playing in the area VC with Ajax. Correct. And and United's recruitment in the last two years and last year specifically has been really really good. So again, Cavani's a really good example. You have Anthony Martial, who's your starting number nine. So you go and get a number nine that does something a little bit different. That's the idea. So uh, I think when you kind of, you don't go and get anti-martial version 2.0, do you? Because that doesn't really work, you know, because then you're kind of like, if, if Martial's not doing it, you don't really want the second guy who's a kind of rubbish version of Martial maybe coming in off the bench. That doesn't really work either. So it's the same with, with, uh, with Bruno. And that's why I'm saying that you're more likely going to get Lingard because Lingard would be someone who would do the work, do the press, Kind of, he might not have the talent. He certainly hasn't got the same numbers. But what you're seeing in a West Ham team is that when he does start, he does get the numbers. So this is what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will be interested in. He'll be kind of looking at his uh, his stats pad and going through it and kind of going, ah, oh, this guy when he gets more minutes is more productive. 
is that something I should think about? And that's the truth. That's how it works. So I think when we look at signings, we look at who United need to go and get. This is why it doesn't all, it's not all about Sancho. And it's not all about the big signing that maybe United fans have craved. Because like you've just said there at the start of the show, the player who looks the best on the right-hand side of the attack is the teenager who won United the game today. So he's still not going to be your your creator from the right-hand side. You're not going to get that creativity out of him on a week-to-week basis. But you've got to kind of, kind of look at what is your real needs in that team. And for the squad, it's about making sure the squad has the depth, has the options, and that you can change the system when you need to change it. That's why someone like Pogba is invaluable, because he can play the double pivot. He can play the three behind the striker. He can go and do different jobs. Whereas you just said there about Tellers and Luke Shaw, at the start of this season, we have all gone, well, Tellers is an attacking fullback and Luke Shaw is more of a defensive fullback. Right. So here we are six months on. Who's the better attacking fullback this year? It's Luke Shaw. So, yeah. you know, so, so quite often we get stuck in those isms of what players are, what they do and how they do it. And I think with recruitment, it's just about bolstering in the correct way. So that's why I'm always talking about Haaland, because even though Haaland's this big kind of striker and all this and trying to actually find ways to win football matches, United's issue quite often is just putting the ball in the net, even though they've scored lots of goals. It's just been, they get like today, 17 chances today. I think we got, and we scored one in the last minute, but we found it hard. We found it hard to get the ball in the box and put it, on target, I can't the key today that... for me, Rob. Look, big chances. Look across the bottom six. That's yeah. the most we created in that. In that a long was all time. in the last ten minutes or so. You know, like like you know, the, the, the whole point of football at the highest level is that you win the game after an hour. It's done. You do your substitutes. Everyone has a kip, and you go away. You've won the match. And Manchester United do not do that very well. And that's the next level. You know, that's where you find yourself. And for me, it tends to be that. They get chances in and around the box, like today, 17 shots on goal. I tell you what, if you get 17 shots on goal, you need to score five or six, and you need to walk games because 17 is a big number for a team like Manchester United. So you're playing through the lines, you're getting into the box, you're getting opportunities. But if Marcus Rashford's maybe only getting one shot off when he maybe should get three off, or you know Mason scores twice today, but maybe has five shots and doesn't really hit the target, or Bruno as well. You know, he's a couple of uh, guilt-ed opportunities around the box today where I thought, you know, really should be hitting the target there. There was one chance on the right-hand side where he just had to curl it back in. It's an easy shot, and he misses the target by about 10 foot. And you think, hmm, you need predators. And Manchester United do need a predatorial instinct up top. I don't think we need to talk about Mason being that predator at the moment, but we certainly could consider the Martial question. And that is, uh, I think Cavani will be gone at the end of the season. I think that will happen. I think that's a natural kind of recycling of players. But he's old. And you have to then go and find yourself a striker that does striker things, but within the concept of your team. Absolutely. Guys, we will now finally answer the European Super League question. You'd love to hear our views on it. Look, Rob. And guys, we haven't had an opportunity. I know Gary Neville has uh, spoken about it. So if you have, you know, maybe a little breakdown of what he said, it'd be great if you could chuck it in the comments. But what he did say before the game or during the game, Rob, he said it's an absolute scandal. United and the rest of the big six should be ashamed of themselves. He also said that, that the teams involved should have a points deduction. Look, Rob, I tweeted before the game, when I obviously when the news broke, I said that football is about 
unpredictability it's about you know almost the impossible happening that's why we love football that's why we love sport you know we love why do we love football because you see the likes of Leicester winning the league from almost seemingly impossible situation from being the bottom of the league the year before we saw Greece win the Euros I remember how old was I was nine years old at the time and just thinking what the hell is going on and obviously you see, see things like Atalanta who are operating on a shoestring budget in the Serie A against these massive other Italian clubs and they're holding their own and in playing fantastic football. That's why we love football. We love the, the David and Goliath stories. My view on this, Rob, this European Super League is that it's just, a, it's just a terrible idea. It's, it's about greed. It ruins the essence of sport. You know, it basically alienates the fans. It consolidates these big clubs and these owners who want to make a shed load of cash it basically creates that elitism. And for me, it's a step too far. There's two things, you know, if they ever happened to Man United, it would really, it would really make me think, you know, this, this is it. I'm going to pack it in. If the Saudis took over and I've said it before on this podcast and, and people that listen know why I think that. And, uh, it, and also I would say, um, you know, if this happened, it would just kill the sport for me. People are asking, can we can we explain what the topic is about? Are you able to just give a rundown of this proposal? It's nothing new, by the way. You know, we were discussing this back in October, I believe. Um, you know, how likely is this going to happen, this European breakaway league? And just if you can break down the the sort of the uh, what would happen, you know, what would happen to Premier League, what would happen to Champions League and what would happen in this Super League? OK, well, several years ago, I'm just going to kind of go back in time. Um, I wrote a few pieces about a potential European Super League. And what I kind of explained at that time was that the kind of the, the, the structure of TV deals and the kind of way that football was going in terms of trending with sponsorship and things like this, that a European Super League was inevitable. And why is it inevitable? Well, it's because the clubs hold all the power first and foremost. So let's look at it like this. If anyone who have, hasn't kind of read up on this or doesn't really know too much about it, but obviously, the, the Premier League itself is founded upon parity. So the teams get equal share of the money, the TV money. And the prize money is then done on position and et cetera, et cetera. The problem with that is that if I'm Manchester United and I'm the Glazers and I'm thinking, well, why do Burnley get the same 20th share of all of that that I get when no one watches Burnley? People weren't watching Burnley Man United today for Burnley. They were watching it for Manchester United. So that then that that puts up a philosophical question in terms of finance and money and all of that stuff. It's capitalism. It's dirty. It's raw. It's about greed. And football is the greediest sport of all. We know this. But this is where the devil's advocate comes into it. And it is really, really important. Is that when you kind of look at how the Premier League was formed, the Premier League was formed in exactly the same way as they're talking about this European Super League. So we had the Football League, which Manchester United were a part of, and the teams in the top division at that point, before the Premier League, whatever it was, 91 or 1990, they all resigned from the Football League to form their breakaway Premier League. 20 years on, we can kind of maybe forget about the greed because we're so used to it or how it is, but this is the sport we watch and love. It's been going on for a really long time. So I think fans have to kind of take a step back and understand that what they're seeing with this, the advent of this European Super League is not new and there are tangible reasons for it. Gary Neville got very impassioned about it and Gary Neville himself is, a, is an owner of a football league club. So has 
the opinion of a football league owner and chairman. So that's one thing. No offense to Gary. You know, I think it's great. I think, you know, in terms of how he talks about lots of these subjects, especially about poverty and finance and stuff like this, he's kind of switched on, he's on the ball, he knows what he's talking about. But unfortunately, if you're one of these top teams in the league, and we're only talking about six, you know, and we believe that the, the other two are, are Tottenham and Manchester City, of course, is that if you are earning a, a slice of six billion pound a year rather than one or two, and you've just had the worst financial results ever because of COVID, there's every chance that you're going to challenge this and you're going to try and do something a little bit different. Now, we look at it in this kind of, again, this English sense of, oh, you know, like, you know, United, Burnley, this is what it's all about. You know, It's not really, is it? You know, we want to see our teams play the best teams and to actually be in the biggest competitions. But we are used to the structure that you have to do it domestically to then go and do it on a European stage. What this is effectively doing is cutting out the middleman. Now, that's really bad for English football as a whole because they need United as much, much more than United need them. And that is where the question really comes about. And I always say it like this, you know, I, I've got no love for the Glazers. I think they are horrible owners. I think they've done a horrible job at Manchester United. They've overseen a period of failure from when we last won the Champions League uh, to where we are now, or when we last won the Premier League with Robin Van Persie in that team. And they are part of that, but they are businessmen. They want the money. And unless the Football League itself, the English football, I'm talking about the FA and FIFA and UEFA all get together and protect their leagues and do it correctly, then this is what is going to happen. And this is why we're now on this precipice. So it's pointless pointing the finger at those six clubs because they are businesses. They are big, huge, multi-million pound businesses and their owners want to earn more money. So how do you stop it? Well, like I just said there, and I think you bring up the ownership issue there about what would happen if a, if a Saudi consortium took over Manchester United. I'm with you totally. I would probably not want to watch Manchester United anymore. I, d- I would feel that that would be the ultimate sellout. Again, that's not an advocation of the Glazers at all. But these businesses have to become self-sufficient somehow. And if United are just getting one twentieth of the pie in the Premier League, then they are going to look elsewhere. This is how it works. So I think what the most prudent thing to do, Hader, at the moment here is for people just to be calm about it and see what happens because we're not at any point of resignations and all of this. And you know, really what the Premier League should do is they should go, if you want to go and do this, then we'll expel you and we will take you to court because there is a clause in your contract that says that you can't do this. It does exist. It is real. But will the Premier League do that? In the same way that the Premier League stopped Newcastle United being taken over by a consortium, but didn't stop the 30 consortiums before that doing it. Yeah, well, they didn't didn't stop Manchester City, did they? They didn't stop Manchester City. And they won't stop the next big consortium. They won't because they want the money. So I'm not sat here. Like I said, I heard Gary Neville on telly kind of talk about the Premier League in glowing terms. You know, and I do think it's a bit rich Sky TV maybe telling us what we should know about financing when it's been their TV deals which have structured a lot of this and actually have hurt well, football. Well, in a they're, really, the really that, way. they're the ones that so, set up the Premier League, weren't so, they? So I, I, I think Sky as a product is great. You know, I think they do a great job in the, in the media terms, but they are part of the issue. This is all part of it. You know, you can't just, you can't rob Peter to pay Paul. You can't say, I like this bit, but I don't like that bit because it doesn't really work. 
I think the smart thing to do here is to see what 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 is this all about? What where are they going? You know, the Champions League is effectively already a kind of elitist competition that they're expanded. You know, top four getting it. In the old days, it used to be the top one. You know, if you were the champions, you got in the European Cup and that meant something, didn't it? If you came second, second was the first loser. Now second, like United are in the Premier League, has rewards and that's reward systems built in by football. That's football that's decided that. Don't be under any kind of circ- kind of illusions that this isn't just football doing the next thing. This is just football being football, greedy, over the top, trying to find ways to make more cash. And, and a six to eight billion pound pot is almost irresistible for 20 odd clubs because if they if they then make, I don't know, 500 million pound in profit a year, when at the moment they might be taking home 100 or even nothing in some some kind of guises for some football clubs, they are going to explore it. I think that the, the blame lays at the doors of organisations like the FA, like UEFA and like FIFA because they have allowed greedy capitalism to take over the sport and they've allowed owners to come into the sport that probably shouldn't have the custodianship of football clubs under their watch. Manchester United are one of those football clubs. They should not have these owners. And really, the FA should have protected Manchester United against that at that point in time. But they don't have a set of rules. The whole thing about being uh, fit and proper to run a football club is a joke. So... You know, who's fit and proper to run a league? If they can't work out who's fit and pro- proper to run a football club, why should the F- the Premier League go, oh, no, don't don't break away from us? You know, oh, you'll have to go and play AC Milan every week or Real Madrid. That's terrible, isn't it? Well, it's terrible for Burnley fans, but it's not terrible for Manchester United fans. So this is the whole point of it is that, you know, how do you find a happy medium? And I just think that this is the end of the Premier League in its in its guise as it is. And I think that this kind of came about the day the Premier League started 20 years ago, is that the minute they broke away from the Football League and said to the Football League, right, you can have the championship, that's your top division, but we're having the Premier League and we're elitist and we're the teams, we're the clubs. The second they did that 20 years ago, that was the start of what we saw today. Uh, that's a fantastic, um, you know, sort of uh, summary of everything. So thank you for that, Rob. What I will no say, though, in sort of um, in sort of just sort of, you know, sort of playing devil's advocate is that when we talk about the Premier League and the revamp of the Premier League, you know, when it was a football league to Premier League, that was done domestically, though. You know, all it was was improving or, or making bigger what was already there. This is a completely different story we're talking about. You know, if there's issues, because I think the Champions League needs to be revamped. That's I've been saying this for years. It's it's lost its, um, I think it's lost its excitement. It's gone a bit stale. Why not do that? Why is it this? What's for me? I'm just talking as a fan. I understand the money side. Let's take away the money side. We know why they're doing it. It's because of the money, and that will cement these teams as the elite. From now on until another thing happens but when as a as a united fan i love the fact that you know we don't play real madrid every single week and that when you do play them after six seven eight years of playing in the champions league that's special that's what it's about you know playing them week in week out you lose that you lose that magic and it's just for me i just think it completely kills it completely kills the game i don't know if you agree with that again let's you know, maybe from a fan's point of view, I want to hear it rather than you know, sort of the the money point of view, because we know why they're doing it. And also, another thing I do want to add, and you know, this is sort of my opinion on it: we're not spending the money now. We're not able to get the Glazers out. If this happens, Rob, they are going nowhere ever. 
and they are in charge because why should they when they're making almost double or triple the amount they're earning now through Manchester United? Yeah, I, I, I'm no offense, Haydar, but that is a kind of I don't want to use the word naive word to say it. But what I would look at that is that if your product becomes stronger, yeah, Manchester United becomes stronger and make more money, there is much more likely that we will get bought out by a Saudi consortium. So if your football club is then worth from three billion to ten billion, only multi multi billionaires can afford you. They pay the Glazers that money. They take the product. The Glazers are off with their lovely NFL team. And there they go. And we wave goodbye to them. And we get exactly what we don't want. So be careful what you wish for. Uh, from a fan's point of view, I'm with you all the way. You know, like the, the whole point about football is the kind of the ebb and flow of the season. And this is why I'm very much more invested in, say, domestic football than, say, cup competitions, because cup competitions are just really about luck and it's about the day. And you can, anyone can beat anyone. And they're not really a kind of true barometer of where your team is. It's just what happens on that day. So that's exciting. But the league kind of shows you a little bit more. But what I will say is this, is that I'm old enough to remember what was going on 20 years ago, just about. And uh, and that was all about greed, corporate greed. And it was, it's was it got nothing to do with kind of, well, did the Premier League need to be restructured? No, it didn't need to be restructured at all. It was just about who got the money. That's what it was about. So they told the Football League, you don't get the money anymore. And as the top 20 teams in the country, we now get the money. That's what the Premier League's about. And then the FA got involved with the Premier League. And that was why we got the FA Premier League as one product. Um, it, you've got to be careful with all this stuff because, like I'm always saying about Robin Peter to pay Paul, it, it, we always think about, you know, when there's ever, we talk about trillions involved and billions and huge sums of money, people will almost do anything to facilitate to get it. Yeah, and that's really where we are with this. And, and it's difficult, like you're saying, you know, should the Champions League be revamped? Well, the teams that are winning the Champions League and winning and taking the prize money home, they're not really that bothered. You know, Manchester United who have won nothing forever, for ages now. You're at the one of Europa League. They're the kind of teams that are, are interested in the restructure because they're thinking, they are because they're not winning anything. How do I get the money? Yeah, how yeah. do I go and get the money? But I tell you what, even though Manchester City might win the Champions League this year and are almost definitely going to win the Premier League, they will be at the front of the queue with their hand out saying, This is what we want. Because football is now a TV sport. Look at us. You and me are here, yeah? We've just watched a game remotely. You're sat there in your room. I'm sat here in this room. and We're talking about football on a screen. This is not the future of football. This is the current situation of football. And this is what they're developing. This is what they're buying into. Because they're saying football fans don't go to football stadiums anymore. And we've just had a pandemic and that might be more difficult in years to come. So do we kind of play lip service to our 10,000 away fans that travel everywhere and love the club? Or do we pay lip service to the 1 billion fans who are watching you and me now around the world? That's really what this is about. And that's why it's complicated. That's why it's not as simple as I like it or I don't like it. Um, I get that kind of, you know, going back to the Gary Neville question there that, you know, Gary, someone's invested in lower league football, will find that this is heinous and absolutely destroys the pyramid and the structure of English football. And I get it. I'm with him. I know exactly why he's saying it. But like I'm saying, you know, where does this money really go? And I think with the Champions League, you know, UEFA make a lot of money out of the Champions League. And I think clubs will be looking at that and going, we're making you that money. Why can't we just make ourselves that money?
And that's the bigger fundamental philosophical question around the finance. We can sit here until we're blue in the face and say, oh, tradition, this, that or the other. Football doesn't give two hoots about tradition. Football cares about itself. And Manchester United, as our football club, being honest, are one of those teams. United, Liverpool, Manchester City, Arsenal, Tottenham Hotspur. Those teams are all really only interested in one thing. And of course, Chelsea are part of that as well. Those six are elite football clubs that get incredible TV audiences and that have big fan bases abroad that will never step inside Stamford Bridge that will never step inside Old Trafford, that will never step inside Anfield. But what they will do is they'll pay a subscription and they'll pay to watch this new European Super League and they'll watch it at four o'clock in the morning and they'll be voracious about it and they'll love it and they'll tweet about it. And that's how the world ticks, Haydar. So this is why it's difficult because if you were just doing it as an English league and you wanted to kind of keep it like that, then I think, you know, I still think that might happen because I think the Premier League need to pay their, their legal card and say, this is how it's going to be and we're going to take you to court if that's what happens next. However, these clubs are stronger than the Premier League. As someone said to me recently, when uh, Manchester City had all those points, you know, that, that transfer ban put in and they took it to the court of arbitration for sport and someone said to me, well, they'll obviously get off on it because they're, they're more powerful than UEFA on their own. Yeah. Little old Manchester City from Eastlands, yeah, are more powerful than the governing body of Europe. It tells you a lot. These football clubs believe that they are, they've got the power and they believe that they have also got the charm to keep the product going. So if you get a European Super League, we're sitting in our going, we wouldn't watch it. Wouldn't we? I don't know. Like we might feel bad about it, but time heals stuff with, with finances. And if it kind of made sense to fans in the end, I don't know if United fans are that bothered about Burnley fans. And that's the truth. I don't really think there's a, a, a kind of um, camaraderie between English football fans. And I don't think Juventus fans kind of look at um, fans of Chievo and go, yeah, we want to look after you. And Real Madrid fans don't look at Getafe and go, we're with you guys. It doesn't work like that. It's not real football. They're interested in the biggest trophies. If you invent a bigger competition, the biggest clubs will want to go and win it and they'll want their cut of the money. Yeah, very very well said. I think, you know, nothing's finalised. I know there's people asking on Twitter if things been finalised, nothing's been finalised. This no. has been a discussion, Rob, for years. I mean, I remember even like three, four years ago, this discussion of a Super League. It's just like looking at what's happened with the pandemic and uh, the finances and the whole situation, you know, th there is going to be a shake-up and it seems like, now is probably the best time than ever to to do something like this, Rob. Yeah, I think I think it's just convenience, Haydar. So, like as you said, just said there, this has been talked about in some aspect or the other for quite a long time. And what they've done is it's convenient, isn't it? So it's a bit like all those businesses that furloughed everyone for months, for six months, and then sacked everyone. So they would do that, and they'd go, "Oh right, okay, we'll furlough you for six months because we, you know, to keep you going, and in six months' time, we'll give you your job back at kind of one of the eateries, like a, a, either a kind of uh, a food establishment or places like that that have all done this. But it's not real, is it? They're just taking advantage of the system to be able to then keep their money in their pockets. So that's the truth about it, and that's really all football is doing. Football's kind of looking at it and kind of going, "How do we keep the money in our pockets?" Because hey, we don't want to give the money away to governing bodies that don't then put the money back into the sport. FIFA are the first ones that will tell you about how much amazing money they pump into football systems around the world. And yes, they do give it away to third world countries and they do help 
you know, sport in those countries in that aspect. But hey, when they got the chance to sell the World Cup to Qatar, they did it. When they got the chance to sell the, the World Cup to Russia, they did it. They didn't really think about what was best for the sport. They thought about what was best for their bank accounts. And money will always rule, Rob. And, and that's that's just a fact. And unfortunately, you know, the, the beautiful game isn't really the beautiful game. It's but got it shouldn't. Under- it shouldn't. I would, lo- I would love the governing bodies now, now to use this as the fear, you know, to kind of go, actually, this might destroy our domestic sport. So if they want to do that, they need to put in rules and regulations that reflect that. And they need to say to like the top 20 clubs in England, we are no longer going to allow you to get taken over by consortiums. We're not going to allow you to get taken over by investment where we're not sure where that money has come from because they've done that for 20 years. We saw teams like Portsmouth almost go out of business because of this. You know, we've seen Blackpool. We've seen countless teams. We're seeing it now Burnley. Burnley have just been taken over. So I tell you what, Sean Dyche won't be manager of Burnley next year. It doesn't matter what he does because they'll be looking at being a different kind of Burnley football club. So they'll get rid of him. He'll end up at probably Crystal Palace, take over from Hodgson, and they'll they'll try and do something more progressive because that's what their new owners will want to see. Uh, and this is how it works, isn't it? Like United's owners, if United did sell on, you know, you said it at Man City. City did it for years. Manager wins the title. Manager doesn't win the title. Sack him. Manager wins the title. Manager doesn't win the title. Sack him. Chelsea, exactly the same. Ancelotti, sack him. And you know, they, Mourinho, sack him. They win something and. That's how that system works. And none of us are really that comfortable with it. But that's the truth. That's how it is. So I just think that when it comes to this European Super League, it's going to run and run. It's not something that's new. It's not going to It's not going to just suddenly happen. There'll be a huge furore about it this week now. And there'll be lots of people coming out. And you'll get people banging the drum who say that they love English football and the Premier League and they are blah, 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 blah. While they take the money out of maybe owners and maybe also from investors who pay their wages and maybe shouldn't so this is the problem is that we will see this with the media companies now in the next few days Uh, and there will be consensus that obviously they'll want to save the premier league because that is a cash cow yeah absolutely guys we're going to talk about the final word now rob um look Manchester united Maybe this time last year, wouldn't have won a game like that. I don't think we played particularly well today. But the biggest positive is we are finding ways to win these sort of games, which we said a few times this season. We're not quite there yet. You know, we, we think we spoke earlier about the Sheffield United game and we mentioned the Everton game. If United had not dropped points there and obviously the beginning of the season, you know, United could be in a title race, but definite progression. Now we're going to have a week off for the first time. That feels like forever. I mean, we've been doing <laughs> the masterclass twice a week now. or We had been doing it twice a week since about October. So... A well-earned rest for the boys. And then it's some big games coming up. We've got Leeds, we've got Roma. I believe we've got Liverpool and we've got Roma again. So what are your final words? What's your final word on this? And uh, how are you feeling with United's progress and we're approaching the business end of the season? I feel good about United's progress. What I just want to uh, highlight, just I've just seen a comment obviously go across up there about why, why certain people invest in football clubs and it was it was actually directed uh, specifically at PSG saying that their owners make money from other outlets etc etc the reason why you go and buy PSG the reason why you go and buy Manchester City is for a term called sports washing you buy them because you've got so much money you can buy that football club you can go and win the Champions League you can go and win the Premier League and then you look good and because you look good you then attract more investment to your country and to your company. So I wanted just to clear that up because I think there is there is this misconception that if you're super rich, then you just do it for love. 
you're super rich and I've got billions, so I go and buy a team and I want to win a trophy. You know, there's lots of talk about why Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea and what was his links to the Russian government at that time. So we can kind of pick holes in all of this, but I think the truth is that the billionaire owners don't tend to do it because they love football. They tend to do it because they love themselves. Just a final word on what you're saying about Manchester United. Uh, I think, you know, I'm having a little bit of a kind of Twitter break. And what I mean by that is that I'm just really not reading anything on Twitter. I might tweet out some of my stuff and kind of obviously talk about the masterclass and, and kind of keep it at that. But the reason for that is there will be load of, you know, Twitter ultras, as I've started calling them, out there today, being really upset that Man United didn't play very well and they don't see progress and it upsets them. And they'll do a podcast about it and they'll cry and they'll do another video about it and they cry and all of this. And it goes around in circles and circles and circles. I just try and look at it from a more salient point. This Manchester United team has come on leaps and bounds in two years. It is not perfect. It's nowhere near perfect. We know that positions can be upgraded. We've just talked about our two very slow centre-backs. And I wouldn't be surprised to see David De Gea back in goal sometime soon now after Henderson's performance today. I don't think the manager will be very happy with some of that decision-making. That might well happen. But I think when you look at United, they have made strides this year. The fact that they're eight points behind a Manchester City team that might well be the best Manchester City team of all time, right? You know, this Manchester City team might win the Champions League this year and they're only eight points behind. Now, people will say only eight points. That's not great. But hey, if Man City lose two games on the spin because they're in Europe now and they're trying to win that and United win their two games, you might have a very funny, strange ending to the season. So I think the fact that United are even there in that conversation is worthy of merit, 100%. I'm proud of Ole and the boys this year. I think that they've sorted out quite a few of their issues. Some of the stuff that was horrible last season, the consistency still isn't fantastic. There's still a team of moments, but we're getting there. We're getting there. If they make the right signings this summer... You know who I want. They make the right signings this summer. I think they can get over the top and become a team that competes with Manchester City and competes with Liverpool. And hey, they might even end this season way and above the English champions from Anfield. And it might be Liverpool looking up going, we now need to buy to catch Manchester United. That in itself is quite a funky position because we would never have said that only six months ago. So credit to Wale. I think he's doing a good job. I think the, the guys are doing a good job. And I think players who are, we might call average, like Luke Shaw would have got called that at the start of this season, have all shown that they have got good upside, good topside, but they need to keep doing it. Absolutely. I mean, look, there's a comment here saying most people before the start of the season were settled for a single point gap to the top. That's why I said, you know, we we're 33 points last season, Rob, behind. 100%. So I said look, at least half that to 15. If United finished behind City, eight, nine points, I'd be delighted because you know what? That is that is a barometer. People say the league table never lies. And I think that's a good barometer of uh, progress. And then look. It's, it's almost, I think the biggest issue, Rob, is will we get the players that we need? That is more of a problem rather than, you know, you know whether, um, whether you know, other sides will do that as well. Because yeah. ultimately, this team can't improve unless it gets better players coming I, in. I really, I really do hate Devil's Advocate because it is the fuel that kind of fan, fans the flames of Twitter. You know, everyone kind of goes, oh, but, but, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, I look at it like this. You know, all these signings we talk about, they might actually not be the key that gets you over the top. It's about finding players that you can bring into your system and can do stuff. The reason why Leicester won the league is because they went and found Kante. 
Nobody knew who Kante was. They went to France and found this Algerian lad called Mores. Nobody knew who he was. The idea is, is that you find the right player. That is always much more important than finding maybe the kind of the primary kind of big center central piece. You know, we've tried the Pogba route and Pogba's now doing well and we like what Pogba does. But it's not always the bit that gets you close to the Galactico is not always what changes you. Hey, Real Madrid, when they bought Modric, was any Real Madrid fan going, Modric, this is the guy who's going to keep us going. And when they bought Tony Cruz, were people going, yeah, Tony Cruz, he's the guy that will run that midfield for years to come. No, no one was. Everyone was still looking at Ronaldo in his backside. That's what they were doing. So it's not really about that. United need to go and find that player, the player that kind of just nudges you forward. Might be a centre-back, you know, who kind of comes in and we go, hey, he can actually run. He can cover. And then Maguire becomes a better player because of it. You know, you find your Tellez and Luke Shaw becomes a better player for it. You find someone that pushes Wan-Bissaka to the next level. You find someone that maybe pushes Fred McTominay to the next level. You don't know. So that's what's important. That's what I want to see. Uh, I don't believe Cavani is that player up top. I think United need a centre forward. Um, but, you know, Anthony Martial might be sat at home watching all of this now going, I could be doing something now. I could be on this pitch getting United over the top you know, in second place. And I might have been the player doing it. Maybe I'll go back next season and prove to Ole that I'm the right player. Um, let's see what happens. Absolutely. Guys, thank you all for your comments and your interactions today. It was absolutely fantastic. Please, 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 if you like the podcast, spread the word. Let's grow this Masterclass family. Retweets, uh, tell people about it. It would be really much appreciated. Myself and Rob will be back next week after the Leeds game. So have a nice weekend, enjoy the sun, and we will see you next time. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.